Hey everybody, welcome to Three Right Turns, the podcast where we have just successfully completed a six-week sprint. Back a few months ago, I was talking to Jim and Cecily, and I figured that I had enough spare material, uh, outlines I was working on, and interviews scheduled that I thought I could get out one podcast per week for six weeks, uh, which is a lot on top of my day job over at Bald Move. But hey, we've done it. Now, there's going to be the regularly scheduled three right turns for next week. So it's almost like a seven week sprint. But after that, we're going to be back to uh, every other alternating week, uh, handing back off the one weird trick and so on, uh, probably through the end of the summer. But we'll see if I get lucky. I build up some content again. I get uh, lucky with a bunch of really good interviews. We might do another sprint uh, in the fall, maybe earlier. But I really appreciate all the support on Patreon.com slash Swizzbold that we've received over this period. I uh, really appreciate all the feedback. In fact, I've already decided since next week is the seventh week of the sprint that I'm almost certainly going to do like a 90% uh, feedback episode next week because I've just got a lot of great stuff that's been generated over the last few weeks. And in fact, I had an interview scheduled today. It was going to be kind of a nice little bookend with the Bastiat uh, thing that I started with. But unfortunately, it fell through at the last minute. But fortunately, I've been working on an outline uh, for a while for a topic that I wanted to get to. I think it's time for us to kind of take a step back and talk about the philosophy, cognitive dissonance, the process of how people change minds, how we can help each other, just a bunch of stuff. Because one of the number one things I get is, you know, how can we change people's mind? Uh, How can I argue with my friends and family? And I think it's time to kind of like take a step back and talk about how that stuff works and what realistic expectations that we can have for each other, right? So... I'm going to start with a personal story because that's kind of what I do here on three right turns. I don't remember the first time that I believed in God, right? Because I can't remember a time until like my contemporary history since my my 30s when uh, I didn't. I can remember learning my ABCs. I can remember learning long division. uh, But I don't remember like learning how to speak English, right? Being able to talk and believing in God were things that I just, as far as I can tell, came with the default understanding of. I can say the same thing about, you know, my identity as like a boy, right? My parents tried to do a lot of things correctly for for their time. They tried to be enlightened people and help, you know, for better or worse, they laid the foundation uh, for the person that stands before you and is speaking right now. So all curses and credit uh, at least go to them for setting me on the path that I'm on now. But, you know, my mom and dad, you know, they got me dollies. I had a little kitchen play set, a little vacuum sweeper and trucks and tools and spaceships. And uh, I incorporated them all into my play. You know, it wasn't weird for me to have a dump truck and a baby doll and to be cooking eggs. And um, and I kind of incorporated that with my son, too. He grew up with uh, me cooking every one of his meals. He had a little cooking play set. Uh, you know, Cecily moved in with us when he was six or seven. But, you know, I still do at least half the cooking, if not more around the house. I do dishes. I clean bathrooms. I do the laundry. He sees me doing all that stuff. And I think it would be honestly weird if he heard someone describe that kind of labor as woman's work at this point. Now, my mom was a Sunday school teacher, and I can remember going to Sunday school. Not a lot because we stopped that when we became Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, And I didn't go to her class because she taught the older kids and I was in the under five-year-old kind of pig pen division uh, where essentially they just had us color pictures of Jesus, you know, and play with toys for a few hours, keep us busy while the adults were worshiping. I have a few memories from Sunday school that stick out. One was a picture of Jesus kind of healing some lepers. And I didn't know what leprosy was, but I knew that these were sick people. And you could tell because they had bandages uh, all over themselves, on their arms, their legs, uh, half their face covered. You know, these people clearly had a lot of ouchies, as I would say. And Jesus was there waving to them because he had just healed these people. And they were all in the process of starting unwrapping themselves. And look, their skin was now all clean. And they were waving him back. And the gimmick of this was that we cut out their little arms that were waving out of construction paper. And you know how you can go to like a craft store and get these big brass tack things that you stick through paper and they have these wings that you fold out. Uh, so it's kind of like a big paper rivet. You know, we use those to attach the arms to the paper. Uh, so the uh, right at right at the leper's shoulders, right? So that you can move their arms up and down. And look, you can, you know, make them wave back to Jesus. That was cool. 
Uh, we also did one where Jesus was walking across the water to one of his disciples, or I guess apostles, Peter. Uh, uh, he's performing this miracle, and Peter got the idea that he wanted to show his faith by trying to walk on the water uh, and coming to Jesus, but he, he he's not quite Jesus, so he starts to uh, fall beneath the waves, and he starts to drown, and Jesus is walking over there, and he's offering an arm to pick him up. Uh, we're illustrating this picture. Uh, we're not illustrating. We're coloring in the picture. And uh, but we also our, our Sunday school teacher gave us two two colors of yarn, like a bright blue yarn and a dark blue yarn. Uh, and we spread that over on the water part. We we use scotch tape to tape and bound at the sides. And then if you like blew across the threads, it, it made it look like the waves were were, were rippling. You know, that's kind of cool. So that's what I learned about about Jesus. You know, he's basically a, a superhero that lived a long time ago. And, and Jesus loves me. And this I know for the Bible tells me so. And uh, I remember that was like my conception of Jesus until uh, my mom was visited by the witnesses when I was between five and six. And after a couple visits with her, the old lady brought me a copy of the witnesses, uh, my book of Bible stories, their children's book. And like right smack in the middle of it, there's this uh, full page illustration of Jesus being um, put to death. And, you know, like a really vivid illustration that like I can see in my mind right now of him in his death agony. And then I remember then then I remember learning the other part of, you know, Jesus is not just a superhero that loves us. He also suffered for us and he died for us. And we're in debt to him and and God for for our lives and, and our eternal salvation. And uh, I was kind of smooth sailing till I got to be about 15 or 16 when I had uh, my first serious doubt about God or about my religion anyway. And it was in high school when we were reading as a class, George Orwell's 1984. And I had this like funny feeling in the back of my skull. Every time I started reading a passage where the hero Winston uh, had to just kind of go along when the party decided to revise history tell him what kind of books he could and couldn't read, who his heroes and villains should be. It it didn't matter that he himself could remember that today's villains were yesterday's heroes, because how could he trust his own memory when the party controlled history? You know, they were able to remove people out of pictures. They're able to add people to this other picture. They changed the quotas. So what would have been a dismal year for chocolate was written as a uh, a bumper yield. Everyone's getting increased rations. Uh, but, you know, you look around in stores who can find chocolate. So I, I say this is my first serious doubt, but, you know, it only really landed because of my accumulated experiences with being in the Jehovah's Witness cult. Um since they got to me before I entered school, it really didn't seem strange that someone would be told what they could read and what they could watch, especially when you're a kid. You know, most parents protect their children in some way. Uh, but this wasn't, you know, parents doing this that might restrict what their kids can watch to things that are age appropriate or with the goal of, you know, one of these days they're going to be uh, fully functional adults that can be trusted to think for themselves and decide for themselves what their media habits would be. no. These were different. These are designed to be kind of permanent restrictions. It doesn't matter when you're an adult witness. You're not you're, you shouldn't watch rated R movies. You shouldn't read outside history and science books because the witnesses have their own books on science and religion and history. And, and why would you need anything else? Right. Because our books were free from all those confusing lies that Satan has been busy going out there, sowing in the fertile fields of the humanities and academia because, man, they, they think they're so smart, these scientists and these professors and these historians. But, you know, the Bible clearly says it's Psalms uh, chapter 14. Only the fool says in their heart, there is no God. And that's what I was taught the scientists and historians are all about, proving that God doesn't exist because they really lost over that power that only God has, the ability to tell us right from wrong. If we listen to these people, these latest and greatest false prophets, we're all going to be doomed, Right. I imagine in my class, most of the kids that I read 1984 with there in my sophomore English class, uh, they were they're all Christians. I imagine growing up in my hometown, the vast majority of them. But I can almost guarantee that I was the only one that this minor religious crisis was being provoked in because these kids couldn't relate for the most part to the authoritarian way that I was being raised. 
You know, George Orwell wrote uh, an essay that is included in the appendixes of 1984, where he indulges in a little bit of world building about his uh, this the society of English socialism that he created. Uh, it's newspeak. Uh, it's doublethink. And uh, I remember that that essay really hit me, too, because I could see the similarities and the odd way that, you know, we witnesses would speak. We had our own terminology. We didn't go to church. We had kingdom halls. We didn't have priests or fathers. We had elders. We didn't have deacons. We had ministerial servants. We weren't going to heaven, at least for the most part. We were going to inherit an earthly kingdom. And, you know, this kind of this use of language uh, separates us, right? And the witnesses did this stuff very deliberately. You know, they always talked about us having a theocratic language that set us apart and made us distinct from the rest of the world. But it's a trap. It works really well because you control the information your people see. But it's a very brittle one because if the person ever managed to escape the control for just a second, like when they're assigned to read 1984 as a school assignment, who knows what damage could be done? And the funny thing is, my mom knew about me reading 1984, right? She monitored what I read pretty closely and often would request me to have alternate readings or material or studies if the official assignment was going to conflict with her religious beliefs or if it's going to be too political or whatever. Uh, And she knew what 1984 was about because uh, aside from being a Sunday school teacher, she was also an English teacher at the local high school. So she was familiar with this material, right? But when she read 1984 back in high school or college or wherever she did, she read it from the perspective of a regular person that, oh, yes, this is an allegory about the dangers of communist authoritarianism. She didn't know what it was going to be like to read it as a witness teen. She didn't know that the payload that it was going to deliver. Right. Because it. It, 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 she didn't have the same perspective that I did. You know, to her, it was just this anti-communist thing. And to me, it's just like, oh, my God, blowing up my whole worldview. So now uh, people that are doing the math and kind of might know my larger story, know that I am going to make it. This 15, 16 year old is going to make it another 10 or so years before I actually wake up about the truth about, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, capital T truth, which is that it's essentially a Russian nesting doll of lies. And it was another five years after that before I made any exterior changes to my life that would, you know, give anyone uh, a hint of the internal changes that I'd already been going through and already making. Ex-witnesses have coined a term for this. They call it being physically in, mentally out. You know, PIMO for short, P-I-M-O. And you might wonder, like, why would anyone stick with something for five years after they've already made a conclusion that it's a bunch of hooey? Well, the reason this PIMO is a handy term is because if you're a baptized member of the Jehovah's Witnesses, there's not an easy way out. You can't be like, hey, guys, I just don't see things this way anymore. You can still believe in God. You can still believe in the son, Christ Jesus. Uh, you can believe in the sacrifice, sacrificial value of, of his life and the salvation of mankind through him. Uh, and I certainly did that for the first few years. I didn't like, you know, jump out of the Jehovah's Witnesses and become an atheist overnight. In fact, you can believe that the witnesses are like 95% correct, more correct than any other Christian religion, which I also kind of agreed with when I first left. But that's not good enough. If you admit that you're anything less than 100% on board with witness theology, you're an apostate. That's grounds for disfellowshipping. And once you're disfellowshipped, every witness in good standing has a duty, an obligation to shun you, which means they're not going to say hi to you on the street. They're not going to call and check up on you. They're not going to invite you to your homes. They're going to do their best to cut you out of their lives as if you are dead to them. Also, Jehovah's Witnesses don't regularly associate with worldly people or what they call non-witnesses. And you can see the trap here, right? Everyone you love is a witness. You have managed through some miracle to escape their thought and information control, but they own with, with very few exceptions, everyone that you care about and everyone that cares about you. So why would a grown man sit in a kingdom hall learning the same things he knows is false over and over again, reciting answers and reading Bible passages that he knows are misleading, knock on doors for hours and hours each month to convert people to religion that he thinks is a trap after he knows it's hogwash. Well, the answer is obvious, right? You, you, fe- you fear change. You fear loss. Uh, I, pro- I promise this is all going somewhere. 
So I had my first doubts about God at 15 or 16, but you know, those doubts get easily dismissed. As I learn, you know, this this book was a warning about authoritarianism, 1984, specifically about one brand of totalitarianism as it was being practiced by the Soviet Union and communist China. So what if the form of the arguments and structure of the control is the same? All that's coincidental, right? And the Bible always has an answer for things. Romans 3, 4, let God be true, though every man be found a liar. Uh, this was a really big kind of scripture, too, um, because it directly addressed the kind of context that I was experiencing. This was a large doctrinal dispute that was going on amongst the early Christians um, as it spread from being a minor Jewish messianic cult to the worldwide success story that it is today. One of the early roadblocks that the Gentile faithful had was being like, really, we got to cut off part of our dicks. We got to get circumcised. And the apostles were like, oof, oh, ooh, that's that's a lot. Maybe not. And the Jewish Christians were like, excuse me. So what am I trying to do here in three right turns? There's primarily two things I'm trying to do. One, if you have genuinely conservative beliefs. Uh, I used to, too. And I can say, hey, you can come out. You can tell me about your beliefs. Uh, I'm not going to mock you or belittle you. I'm going to take you seriously. And I can offer you kind of the same answers that led me from where you are right now to where I am today. And if you do that, uh, you're going to be less angry. Or if you're to the same amount of anger, you're going to be angry at the right targets. And you'll also have not just a correct description of the problems, which many people like, you know, you can watch a Fox News broadcast and see what the problems are with society. Uh, but you'll also have an accurate prescription for how to go about solving these problems. Right. But I I think I failed at that part of the mission because, you know, thus far, I've just not had a lot of conservatives or at least mainstream type conservatives. You know, apologies, to my friend, real Republican for moving forward. Uh, not a lot of these people have come forward to talk about the issues. The best I've had is uh, so far never Trumper, a neoliberal, a liberal Brit gender critic and a libertarian. Right. Uh, maybe they're out there listening and they're just seething with anger, which I guess still, I guess, is a failure of my mission. Or maybe they're afraid to talk uh, because they don't buy that I'm not going to make fun of them or they're going to get a, f a free and fair hearing, which, you know, still, I guess I would consider that a failure of the mission. But, you know, remember, it took me 10 years to figure out things about a tiny religious cult in the day of the Internet. You know, the Internet was starting to become a thing when I was a late teenager. And that information was all very easily defined from the very beginnings of, you know, uh, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses have been using the Internet to mobilize and organize uh, since it was a thing. And then another five years after that to actually start making changes and separating myself from this organization. Here's another example. Over on BaldMove.com, about five years ago, Jim and I covered a documentary about the beef industry called Cowspiracy. I watched that film and I was taking my notes like I do and I was thinking, oh man, this poor movie, uh, I'm sure they're going to have to shred it on its factual merits because that's what I do, at least with documentaries. I, I take it that most people watch them and just assume that they're from the God's honest point of view uh, and they're just unvarnished truth. But, I, you know, I grew up as a conservative and I've watched a lot of Michael Moore movies and I know that documentaries a lot of times color outside the line. They definitely have a POV. Uh, so... I sit down and I watch the documentary and I like to see, you know, what are the people saying? Try to figure out its POV. Uh, it's very rare to find a documentary that doesn't have a point of view. If it does have a point of view, what do the people from uh, the other point of view, the opposite point of view, have to say about it? What are the holes? What are the exaggerations? Where are the omissions? Where are the outright lies? And you look at a movie like Blackfin about orcas held in captivity, right? Uh, that's one of the documentaries that, man, it just really pitches straight down the middle. You watch that movie, uh, you, you can go out there and find SeaWorld's rebuttal to its facts, and, you know, you read that letter, and it just doesn't even seem convincing on the face of it. But then you read expert cross-examination of that letter, where they're going and taking exception to it, and they're pointing out the lies, uh, and it's devastating. And then you go back to read SeaWorld's response to that, and, oh, there isn't one, you know? And with conspiracy, like I said, the numbers that they were giving on greenhouse gas emissions caused by beef, the environment destruction, uh, the water usage especially, were, to my mind, just shocking, ridiculous numbers. 
But as I researched it, I found out to my surprise and, and, and kind of growing horror that, no, these numbers were actually pretty on the money. Maybe they're at the top end of the estimates in places, but they weren't outright exaggerations. You're thinking, my God, if this is how we in America eat, you know, it's very easy to determine that literally not everyone on this planet, 7 billion, 8 billion people could have this dietary lifestyle. It's, it's physically not possible on this planet Earth. Now, that was five years ago. For the first few years, um, you know, I was wrestling with this concept and I didn't change anything about my life except for that familiar buzzing in the back of my skull that I associate with like cognitive dissonance when I'm really my, my mental gears are grinding. I kept on thinking, well, maybe I should cut out meat for my diet. Maybe I should be a vegan or vegetarian. You know, I, I can afford to eat meat and, you know, it's more convenient and it's I'm just one person. Um but if you think I'm going to say, like, I'm a vegetarian or vegan today, no, that's that's not the case. But I have cut out about 90% of the meat from my diet. Maybe I'll get to 100% one day. But on the other hand, if every American cut their meat consumption by 90%, we'd all be healthier and the planet would be much better off. On the other hand, uh, I really bristle when I talk to vegetarians and vegans that give me shit about the other 10%. And I swear to God, every single time... Uh, one of them points this kind of these facts that I already know out to my face. I kind of want to go eat a steak, you know, because fuck those people. I find that's how my mind changes the most on things that I get really entrenched in. Right. I get exposed to new information, find out if it's true. Then I have to deal with all that cognitive dissonance and resistance to change that seems like it's built into the human experience. You know, like we have all these overlapping uh, internal biases that kind of keep us from easily dismissing information that we previously perceived as true. And this process, getting new information uh, to changing my mind to actually doing something about the change, especially on these deeply entrenched things, can take years. But a lot of things uh, that people ask me, because I get a lot of requests for like, you know, how do you debate people? How do you, um, you know, get in arguments with friends and family? How do you know that something is true? Well, you, you got to start looking at the arguments. You know, you look for problems in argument structure. You look for logical fallacies. You look at studies. Uh, you look at the statistics cited in other people's arguments. And then you look at the studies. Do those agree with the conclusion? Because a lot of people will take uh, a statistic or two out of a study, out of context, and use it in a context that even the study's authors would be like, well, that's not what we meant. That's not what that suggests at all. Um, you know, do the statistics agree with the, the the study's conclusion? Why or why not? And how many studies are we talking about? Are we looking at one study, five studies, 15, 150 studies? How much do they all agree, right? And if there's 150 studies and 99% of them agree on their conclusions, then I think for the average person, the answer should be easy. You should just go with whatever the experts think. Sometimes experts are wrong, but if you're a betting person, the safest money by far is to go with expert consensus. Because, you know, for the most part, even when experts are wrong, they're wrong in a way that doesn't matter to most people. Like, you know, Isaac Newton was wrong about the mechanics of how gravity works, right? You know, Einstein was more right with his theory of relativity, but not 100% right because he didn't know about the whole quantum mechanics thing that was just around the corner. But still, with what Newton knew, that's good enough to launch a rocket from this Earth and hit any heavenly body in our solar system, often involving slingshotting around other planets and using the gravity wells to get speed boosts along the way and hit your target. So for being wrong, he's pretty fucking right. And you see this with a lot of stuff. You know, our diet, our, cal our calories bad, our carbs bad, fats, trans fats, BPAs, lead, formaldehyde, mercury. Well, the answer in the past 30 years has been yes, no, maybe. Well, it, it depends, you know. You just drink in mercury, it's pretty bad. But if you amalgamate that with silver, well, that's a filling that you put in your teeth and it doesn't cause you any problems. You can use compounds of mercury to stabilize things and vaccines, you know, and it's not going to hurt you. But but one thing's for sure, if we all insisted on eating like a late 19th century farmhand or a lumberjack, a lot of us are going to die in our 50s for high blood pressure, cholesterol, obesity, etc. But a lot of this public perception about science being wishy-washy, especially in the late 20th century and early 21st century, isn't the fault of the experts so much as it is our media and the way we consume it. 
Because studies that confirm findings that we already know or make subtle small changes in our understanding just don't get reported on. But studies that say if you eat this fish oil supplement, your balls are going to be 23% less wrinkly. Oh, yeah, give me that. I need that. Where do I get the supplements? Can I order them off bulk off Amazon? Do I got to drive to GNC? Where do I get it? Never mind that we're reporting on just one study. You know, that talks about the 23% decrease of ball wrinkles that might have some problems with its methodology or hasn't been confirmed. That's the study that always gets reported and people write headlines on, right? So I think that you have to decide whether you're going to go with expert consensus. And if you don't, then you're going to be at the mercy of conspiracy theory land. You're going to be trafficking in secret knowledge that society doesn't want people to know that they're trying to keep quiet. Every problem in the official narrative is a place where you can wedge in a theory that relies on common sense and conventional wisdom, and every disproved point of yours is just part of the conspiracy to discredit your ideas. And you know what? Every once in a while, you get a genuine conspiracy. The CIA really did inject people with LSD and other substances to try to control their minds. The United States really did sell illegal arms to Iran to finance the illegal overthrow of governments in Latin America. But again, if you're betting on whatever random hill that you're currently wanting to stand on and die is going to be the next MK Ultra Iran Contra affair, you're more likely than not going to go broke. And sometimes going broke is you know, kind of fairly benign. Like there's a lot of worse things to be than someone who believes in a flat earth, right? Mostly you're going to be seen as a harmless eccentric and that's what you will be. But then, you know, there are guys I've seen documentaries where they go all in. They spend thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on experiments that end up proving, oh, shit, the earth actually is round. And they lose their jobs. Their families are estranged from them. Uh, destroys their social life. Sometimes it destroys their sanity. How do you figure out what's true and what's the conspiracy? Well, if you trust in consensus, you just trust in consensus. But that's hard to do when it's something you've grown up believing. Trust me, outside of Jehovah's Witnesses, there's a huge consensus that Jehovah's Witnesses are annoying kooks, if not worse. But if you grow up as the annoying kook, it's all you know. Being an annoying kook is your way of life. So what do you do if you don't want to believe in a consensus? You don't want to accept the fact that you are a kook with kooky views on things. Or maybe there isn't a consensus on something. You know, if you get 150 studies and 99% of them agree, you know, that's something. But if there's one or just a handful and they're all very recent, well, congratulations, because you've just arrived at the bleeding edge of society's knowledge about a thing. And it's kind of exciting because you can get on the ground floor and watch the consensus build. But how do you do that? I've been thinking about this lately in terms of video game, like role playing dialogue, like thinking about Skyrim or something like that. The Witcher three uh, and think about like how deep different conversation trees go with different characters. Right. You, you go up to a shopkeep and you enter the store and they'll be like, hail and well met, dusty traveler. Can I interest you in my wares? Uh, And, you know, maybe you can ask them about the local village or current events and you can ask about one or two other things. But then there's really nothing more to to ask. Their dialogue trees are very shallow. Uh, They don't really go anywhere. And if you try to ask them further about the subjects, they just start repeating themselves or they just redirect you to the thing that they really want you to do, which is buy their shit. But, you know, you go up to a king or an empress or the head warlock of the Ninth Lodge of Hell in the game and who boy. Those dialogue trees can run deep. You know, tell me about this Ninth Lodge of Hell. Well, the Ninth Lodge of Hell is a superior successor to the previously failed eight lodges that were all betrayed by the Sons of Hemlock. Oh, word? Who who are these Hemlock dudes? The Sons of Hemlock are all foul liars recruited by the ancient spirits of the Grove. But fortunately, they've been all but eliminated from our midst. Only whispers of them remain. Oh, people whisper about them, huh? Yes, there are rumors that the spirits seek to still recruit new champions from the Grove, but we patrol that area regularly and are convinced we have it contained. Huh. Well, where is this Grove? It's to the east, in the heart of the forest of Mukbang. Oh, you hear that? What are you going to do next, Dusty Traveler? I mean, sure, you might screw around at the inn's keeps and hunt up a side quest or two, but it's pretty clear where the main quest leads, right? Gotta go check out this grove. And if you do, you're sure to meet some kind of elemental spirit that's going to tell you, oh, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It's these warlocks of the Ninth Lodge that are the deceivers. They keep the land in darkness and ignorance, and we're the keepers of the old ways, and we keep the land in balance and harmony. And they're, you know, warlocks from hell. You can't trust them. 
So you go back to the warlocks and they're like, ah, that's what they would say. Ask them to tell you about their old ways. I think you'll find those spirits are feasting upon the dead and drinking human blood from their cups. So you go back to the spirits and they're all like, we're insulted. Did you even suggest that we eat humans? You want to look in our cups? You can't do that because we, we value our privacy. And what businesses of it yours to what we drink in our cups? And you know, all you can do is have conversations with both of those sides, hear what they have to say, pay attention to who runs out of dialogue first, and then pay close attention to what they're actually doing. Because you can say whatever, eventually you got to do stuff, and you can judge people by what they do. And what I found crucial uh, to understanding, like, you know, which side is right or not in this world, is eventually one side is going to run out of a dialogue tree. You find that one side eventually has like an unanswerable concern or counter or claim or fact, and the other side doesn't have a response for it. Or if they have a counter and you investigate it, oh, wow, they just misused that stat or they came to a different conclusion from the study that they cite or they misinterpreted the statistic or they missed its significance. And that's the game. That's how you find out truth. That's all there is to it. It just takes time. And an open mind. But there are layers to it, right? Because frequently you'll see both sides are going to engage in hyperbole. Both sides are going to have their hypocrisies and their contradictions. Both sides are going to have their persuasive, intelligent speakers. And then they're going to have their kind of shallow, not so persuasive thinkers. Both sides are going to have their blind spots and biases. And you're going to have your blind spots and biases. And it's really hard work to sort all that out because the easy thing to do is to take your side and you ignore all of your side's hypocrisies and contradictions. You only consume media from your side's most persuasive, intelligent speakers. And to the extent that you get the other side at all, you concentrate on their hypocrisies and contradictions. You seek out content where their shallow thinkers are just screaming and yelling and you congratulate yourself that you're on the side of angels and the other side's morons and... There you go. You just lean into those blind spots and biases because it's hard work doing this process right, which is why whenever there's an expert's consensus on something, I really advocate going with that. You know, to go with an expert consensus on something, all you need to do is prove to your level of satisfaction that the world's scientists, scholars, historians, doctors, whatever the subject matter expert in this field is, that they're not in on some global conspiracy to fool the public for nefarious ends. That's it. And while their understanding isn't perfect, their research is peer-reviewed, and it's literally the best tool that we have to get to the bottom of any kind of real truth in the world. Like I said, that's that's pretty easy to do, you know, convincing yourself that the the experts out there aren't out to, to get you. You can talk in terms of how the scientific method works. You can talk about following the money. You can talk in terms of how many people would have to be involved in like this presumed global conspiracy. And as that number increases, it gets more and more difficult to keep things, you know, conspiratorial. And if you're talking about like things around scientific consensus, you can then start adding how many people from how many countries, all with their mutually incompatible agendas and cultures and desires, how many of those people would all have to be working together to present this false idea um, of whatever it is that you want to doubt their consensus on. And ultimately, the best argument for just going with expert consensus is that's how we live our lives already. We trust weathermen, doctors, engineers, and other experts on a minute-to-minute, day-by-day basis. You don't demand to see the structural drawings of a bridge before you cross it. You don't demand to see the inspection records for a plane that you're about to board. You don't verify every encryption certificate before you bank online. In fact, it's really telling, in a way, the things that people do get worked up about regarding expert consensus. The things they want to just like, whoa, 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 buddy. What kind of bill of goods are you selling me here? What the intellectual off-ramps are for people that just get off board on this whole science thing. You know, vaccines, genetically modified crops, climate change. If you want to go against experts, it's hard work and it's fraught. To go against experts consensus, you have to almost become an expert in that subject yourself. And many of them have studied for years and have decades of experience in their fields. And what, you're just going to watch a YouTube video for a couple hours and outdo them? You have to have 
a good handle on bias, statistics, logical fallacies, and most people don't. Then you have to go down all the different dialogue trees and find the best arguments to see what side runs out of persuasive counters first. Most people can't or won't do that. In fact, you know, another thing I get a lot of feedback is, is like, gee whiz, Aaron, you sound like you're uh, pretty with it on this anti-capitalism thing. Why aren't you just a full-blown socialist? And that's that expert consensus thing. You know, there's a lot of maybe reasons that there's a consensus that, uh, you know, free market capitalism is the best way to generate wealth and, uh, you know, the the best way to to organize economics in society. But um, to change that consensus is going to take a whole lot of research and study and experimental uh, experimentation and trial. And crucially, you know, as we found out in our conversation, Bastiat a lot of 20th century examples of those were not great. So that's why I'm not a full-blown socialist, right? Now let's talk about good faith. This is something you hear and you're not arguing the good faith. I thought this was going to be good faith argument. Well, if you can't argue in good faith, what does it mean to have a good faith argument? I think a lot of people think having a good faith argument means that within a step or two, the other person is going to start agreeing with them because I'm in good faith and I believe this. So why won't they, you know, but I think that good faith means that you go into a discussion with a goal to tell the truth and assume the other person is going to tell the truth too. It means you're not going to assume that the other person has an agenda beyond just this conversation, right? Good faith does not mean you walk into a conversation with an open mind, right? I believe the earth is round and it happens to be round. I can have a good faith conversation with the flat earther, but I would go into that conversation not expecting the flat earther to change my mind because the earth is in fact round. I would expect that they have serious gaps in their scientific knowledge. They probably have an unhealthy skepticism of authority. They could be very bright in one field of science or endeavor, Uh, And then generalizing that expertise to expertise in all fields of endeavor. And this happens all the time. You know, you find a chemical engineer that wants to opine about mental health or a talented and successful programmer that wants to tell you how the economy works. Not because they've studied the issue. They don't have a minor in these fields. It's just because they're so smart and they're so good in this one area. They assume that their subject matter expertise in that one field just instantly translates into mastery in the other. It's very infuriating, um, but it happens all the time. But I'd certainly am capable of having a good faith conversation with a flat earther in like my personal life, but I wouldn't ever have one in front of an audience or on a podcast. Why? Why would that be? Because I personally have not, I don't really give a shit about flat earth. And because of that, I haven't really looked into it beyond watching a YouTube video or a documentary or two. And I haven't seen all the strongest flat earth arguments. And that can be really dangerous when you're doing that in front of an audience. Why? It's because I don't know everyone in the audience is as solid on the whole idea of the earth being round as I am. You know, they might not be able to spot logical fallacies as well. They might not be very scientifically literate. Just to make things simple, let's assume the dialogue tree for flat earth discourse resembles our example of the mystery of the ninth lodge of hell and the sons of hemlock, right? There's just one path around some central fact. You know, dialogue one goes, the earth is flat because, duh, you can see it. You ever been to a beach? Look at the horizon. It's flat. Then my response might go, well, actually, the earth is so large and the horizon at sea level on the beach is so relatively close that it just appears to us as flat. However, if we look at a tall ship on the horizon approaching land, let's say maybe a cruise liner. If you look, you can clearly see the top part of the ship appear first like it smokestacks. Then as it gets closer, you can see the top decks appear. uh, And then finally, sure enough, there's its hull. And it happens this way because the Earth's curve hides the lower part of the ship like a person slowly climbing a hill. We first see their head, their shoulders, and so on until boom, there you go. You can see their sneakers when they're standing on top of the hill. We can see the whole person. And then they might come back uh, three levels deep in the dialogue tree now and say, ah, but that's not the Earth's curvature. That's a common mistake. That's atmospheric distortion and the mirage effect. You know how when you're driving in the summer and there's the heat shimmers on the road to make it look like water as you approach them and then they disappear when you get closer? Well, it's the same thing. The boat's being obscured by this surface distortion, this mirage, and as it gets closer, it punches through. Well, 
I've never heard this argument in my life. In fact, I just kind of made it up. It sounds right, right? It's probably a flat earther talking point. And I'm, I'm suddenly in uncharted waters. That seems accurate. It tracks with my personal experience about how mirages work and all that stuff. I certainly couldn't tell you why it's wrong. So I might try to redirect with, well, you know, okay, I'll have to take a look at that information. But but here's another point. Uh, here's a picture I took with my cell phone from an airplane window that was cruising at 35,000 feet. You can clearly see the Earth's curve, even though it's slight. And because, you know, the higher you go, the more curved it's going to look. And they'll say... Ah, but do you know about the fisheye effect? Because those cell phone cameras have a very small depth of field, and this causes distortion at the edges of their frame. And here's 15 pictures that illustrate this effect at various scales. And here's five explanations from world-class photographers about fisheye, and it's all going to line up. And fuck me, I look into it, and they're right. But does that mean that Earth is flat? Fuck no. It just means they've studied the dialogue trees a lot more than I have, and I've walked into their trap. Now, a scientist who's familiar with these arguments wouldn't even be in this position because they know that even from a great height, like 35,000 feet, the Earth still has a barely perceptible curve. And you have to see at least, I don't know, 60 degree field of view to be able to detect it if you could. And, you know, an airline window, do you get a nice good 60 degree view of field of what's out there? You don't. But, you know, I just allowed a flat earth person to kick my ass up and down this dialogue tree and a reasonable low information listener might conclude damn maybe there is something to this whole flat earth thing that's the real danger of getting into public debates or discussions with someone where you don't have a great command of not just the facts but you can end up doing more harm than good it's one of the reasons that historians really don't like the public debate a holocaust denier A Holocaust denier or revisionist, as they prefer to be called, can just keep nitpicking the official record, finding inconsistencies here and there. And the historian can keep patiently correcting and adjusting and matching them point by point. But soon from the audience perspective, gee whiz, it seems like the expert here is really on the defensive. Seems like there's a lot of holes in the official record. And as the historian gets huffy and demands to know exactly what this denier or excuse me, revisionist is getting at, the revisionist can say, hey, I'm just asking questions. That's still allowed, right? Do we have to just accept these things we're taught and handed down as gospel? Why are there so many disputes in the official record? Why do I get called anti-Semitic for just asking questions? What is there to hide? I thought this was a liberal democracy we lived in. What's with all this thought crime crap? Is he asking these questions in good faith? I mean, maybe. Or maybe he's wanting to discredit the official record to make it seem like one of the Third Reich's worst sins wasn't so bad after all. And, you know, if people would lie about something like that, what else would they lie about? So that's one trap you can have wading in from the shallow end of the dialogue tree, quickly getting out of your depth and then floundering before your intellectual opponent, uh, or worse, the audience too. But there's another subtle danger, and that's having the final form of the argument, the final dialogue tree argument, and using it to crush a good faith argument from a well-intentioned person. And I've had that happen plenty of times to me. So imagine you're arguing with a flat earther and they say the earth is flat because that's how it looks. And I come back and I say, look, man, their astronauts took a picture from the moon of a round earth shaded by a round moon. If you're going to start up with this airline windows and fisheye lenses, you can just go and fuck yourself. Now, my opponent didn't know anything about fisheye and the curvature of the earth, thinks NASA's in on a conspiracy to, to, to promote the round earth theory. And the audience just saw me go nuclear in round one of a fight and sees me as brittle and defensive and not very open-minded. I'm not going to score any points with either the opponent or the audience. You know, think back to our imaginary role-playing game. And you're in round one of the investigation between the warlocks of the Ninth Lodge of Hell and the Sons of Hemlock. And just as you're starting in talking to these elemental spirits about the Hemlock business, someone busts in the room and starts screaming, enough with all this talking shit. Ask them about what's in their cups, huh? What are they drinking? Why are they drinking human blood? That probably sound like a crazy person. It's also a rational reaction if you've gone down the dialogue trees and you've come to the conclusion that the sons of Hemlock are a bunch of reactionary cannibal assholes, you know? It's understandable. But I'm also thinking about these clips where, you know, you see some young woman with candy-colored hair and they're screaming and they're red-faced about something or another and they're they're getting passed around uh, conservative circles, uh, intellectual dark webs, 
and they're passed around with like, would you get a load of this psycho? And everybody laughs about it and they're so easy to dismiss. The thing is, a lot of the time when I watch these clips, I see a person who's upset that they've had this conversation probably a hundred times in their life. They have the final forms of the argument, but they probably are not able to argue it from a first principle kind of thing. And now they're a meme being passed around conservative circles as an argument against liberal culture or social justice or being woke or whatever. And sometimes, as frustrating as it can be, most of the time, actually, you have to walk a person through the dialogue trees one step at a time. And if you're not willing to do that, maybe not have the conversation. You know, maybe you get a pass if you're at a rally and someone sticks a camera on your face and you just have to go, right? Like a lot of these people are. But I think it's a good thing to think about because I've seen on Bald Move forums, I've seen in the Swizzbold Reddit uh, and other places, stuff like this tends to happen. Now, if you do have the conversation, let's talk about expectations. Let's roll things back to the beginning of this podcast. And let's say that my English teacher gave me the 1984 assignment not just because, you know, it's a great piece of literature and it's something that was it's going to be covered that year, but she knew I was a Jehovah's Witness and specifically gave me that book because she knew it was going to cause me super spiritual problems. Can you imagine? And again, this is I don't think that really happens. This is a thought experiment. But I imagine she'd probably be pretty disappointed in her efforts, right? If she checked in on me a month after, still a witness. A year later, I'm still a witness. Five years later, still a witness. Ten years later, still a witness. Now, what she wouldn't know at ten years in is that I've actually made some pretty profound internal changes. But, you know, if she's just going off of what I was saying and doing, still a witness. I had a lot to lose. She'd still have to wait another 15 years to see me actually make the external changes in the way that I live my life to where she'd know, ah, that 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 discussion I had, that argument I had, that book I signed, finally, finally something happened. But, you know, on the other hand, she has, for better or worse, played this foundational role in the path I eventually took. And she never, I'm sure, never, n- never n- knew that. It's easy to change someone's mind when they haven't thought much about a matter. It's really easy to change someone's mind when doing so doesn't have any effect on their lives one way or another. It's super easy when both those things are true. But it's very hard to change a person's mind when they've thought a lot about a matter and when that matter is very important to them. And if they have personal experience with the matter and you don't, it's about impossible. Now, I think that this is probably pretty common sense stuff, but also a lot of people don't really put it into practice because... A lot of people just don't have experience making major changes in their belief systems during their life. And it's hard to change a person's mind when they've thought a lot about the matter. And it's important to them. So when we have a discourse on Swizzbold, I want us to try to remember that. When someone comes on the show and has a discussion with me about a controversial topic, I think the expectation is that they're going to hear the facts and then change their minds. Or I'll hear something new and change my mind. But... That's really unreasonable. You know, three right turns, I've said it before, I'll say it a lot uh, going forward, but it's not a safe space. You know, I think safe spaces get a bad rap. Uh, I don't think they're bad. I think safe spaces are valuable. Uh, They have an unfair reputation. You know, whenever you see them discussed by, uh, you know, intellectuals, conservatives, uh, independent thinkers, you think that there are these places where like fragile people who can't bear to hear a differing opinion go to just survive because otherwise they'd cry themselves to death that they ever heard a dissenting opinion. Now, I'm not going to say that's entirely an unfair characterization because I'm not going to answer for every stupid thing a 19 year old has said or done on a college campus. I mean, Jesus. But safe spaces are insanely useful. How? Well, let's say you have a conference for climatologists, uh, annual climatologist conference, and they go over the latest science. They look at the research. They talk about alternative forms of energy, carbon sequestration, you know, that that real climate science shit. And let's say that in one of the panels, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro crash it and they tie up all the time asking level one dialogue tree questions of the scientists involved. Now, are these scientists going to stop? what they're doing and patiently answer all of these guys' questions? Or are they going to call security? Because 
They're not there to answer questions from rando, bad faith TV personalities and intellectuals. They're not there to have the level one conversations. They're on there to have the level 10 conversations. Voila, they've just created a safe space to talk about climate change, a space where it's safe to talk about climate space in a productive, positive way. But three right turns, it's not a safe space. It's not the Wild West. You know, I'm not going to invite in Klansmen on for them to explain their ideas on how a more homogenous society are going to solve all our problems in this country. I'm not really interested in having like a dyed in the wool fiscal conservative on to explain how our markets just aren't free enough. And the reason healthcare is so expensive in this country is government interference and blah, blah, blah. You know, you can watch CNN if you want to hear any of that stuff. You can listen to NPR. I think the line I'm trying to draw is right at the boundary between, you know, quote, unquote, real racism and structural or institutional racism. I don't want to debate a Klansman. It's a waste of time. But I'll have a discussion with people who don't believe that racism is alive and well in America. Now, these people, as I understand it, are enabling racism and probably harbor at least a lot of unconscious racial bias. I mean, most of us do. I think the world would be a hell of a lot better place if academics created a new term for structural racism. You know, like we have supernovas and we have regular novas. And from an astrophysics point of view, you would not want to be in a solar system of a star going through either process because they're both incredibly destructive. But they're not the same thing. Supernovas, novas. Maybe we should have called being in the KKK or supporting segregation or wearing a Nazi armband or using the N-word as like super racism, and the structural and systemic racism could just be racism, you know, because right now the ambiguity allows people to just have ridiculous fucking conversations like the statement black people can't be racist towards white people. That's literally stupid. Black people can use slurs. Black people can be prejudiced towards whites. Black people can harbor thoughts of racial supremacy, black supremacy. Black people can, in the new parlance that we just created, be super racists. But they can't be systematically racist towards white. They just can't. They just can't. Not in America. Maybe in South America. Maybe in America 200 years from now where whites are in the minority and previous minorities are just shitting on our rights left and right the same way that we have done historically to theirs. Maybe then we can have black Americans being structurally racist, systemically racist. But right now, it's literally not possible. How could it be? They're like 13% of the population. Well, what about South Africa that we just mentioned? I know that's a, that's constant concern in a lot of conservative circles, like a hotbed of, you know, super racism. But it's interesting because, you know, white people in that country were a minority. I think the highest percentage of white people living in South Africa was just under 10 percent. And, you know, most of us understand the horrors of apartheid, you know. Uh, it is possible for a minority to have an undue outsized influence. But that doesn't really apply to, you know, black and brown people living here in America, where they hold few of the levers of power. You know, if Africa had, say, colonized Europe and the Americas in the last 500 years, you might have an argument. But, you know, it's not how history went. But here again, this last weekend, I was on step two of a dialogue tree with a person who took exception with the idea that everyone in America is racist because we elected a black president just a few years ago. Now, I don't think that's an unreasonable position to take. It's wrong. You know, it's it's there's there's all kinds of things. There's, uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talked about the moral license uh, that someone who under that, that, that harbors a lot of uh, unconscious bias will elect a black president and then think I elected a black president. I can't possibly be racist, which allows them to act on their unconscious biases because they've been given the moral license to be racist because they've just publicly demonstrated by voting for a black man that they're not, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on like that. But I, like I said, I don't think it's a unreasonable position to take, you know, how can America be racist? We just elected a black man to the highest office in the land. So I said something like, you know, most of the time when you hear people say something like everyone in America is racist, they don't literally mean they're racist in the sense that they literally hate black people. And he came back with like, let me get this straight. You're saying that when people say all people are racist, they're not saying that all people are racist. And here's a crucial point. 
I could tell by the tone of his of his tact that he thought he's onto something, right? That he's got me in this logical vice grip. Like, look at Aaron literally, you know, saying two plus two equals five. This is some fucking George Orwell, 1984, liberal classic doublespeak. It sounds ridiculous. You know, how can you use a word with a different meaning that's what's commonly understood, right? But then I say, well, yeah, you know, it's like when a person who is technically proficient says the word CPU and they mean an actual chip on a motherboard inside a computer. But someone who's not proficient and who doesn't really understand how computers work, they say CPU and they mean that big square box where you plug in the keyboard and the mouse and the monitor into. They're related, similar, but they're talking about very different things. But, you know, even as I was trying to explain this, I had four or five people in my timeline all saying variations of enough with this discourse. What's he got in his cup? Huh? I bet it's blood. It's blood. Is it blood? And then, you know, the structurally racist person fucked off with a bunch of hand wringing flowery shit about why can't we have reasonable conversations about things in this country? Oh, what a shame it is. I'm trying to have. And, you know, it would be an entirely factual point to scream back because people are dying because of your uninformed bullshit. You know, it's true. It's a true statement. People die way more to the racism than the super racism that we're talking about in, in the country at this time. But would that be productive? And you know what? I can't say I would have gotten anywhere with the CPU versus CPU argument, right? But but it's possible he would change. That would be the 1984 in his life, that the, the first moment where he like, oh, God, that actually, huh, all right, that's a reasonable answer to my concern. And maybe he'd go on to raise his kids with a better understanding of the world. I think about that sometimes, how there's people in this world today that never knew that they're patiently engaging with a backwards young man with reactionary ideas about gay people would then take his son to pride some 20 years later. And look, I'm not saying you got to be charitable to hateful racists, you know, these, these super racists, especially if you're a minority. It's, it's got to be exhausting. I don't see how y'all do it. But you know, the people in my timeline all being like, what's in your blood cup, you fucking cannibal? I looked at profiles, mostly liberal white guys. And you know, hey, maybe they're suffering from racial exhaustion too. I don't know. It can happen. I get pretty fed up with this shit too. I get pretty angry. I get emotional. But when I have people on, I'm certainly not expecting to change their minds. I'm not expecting them to change my mind. Not necessarily. There's plenty of areas of uh, which my mind is open to be changed. You know, I've gotten emails uh, about this Turf Wars episode, right? And wow, the subreddit really taken with the topic. You know, it's like 100 responses on that thread. And I got to say, so much of that discourse was really positive. But a lot of people ask me, why didn't you use this tactic or this tactic or this point or this point? Or some people who were gender critical themselves didn't like the fact that I didn't go into the debate with an open mind or I didn't consider this point or that point. But, you know, it's a two hour conversation. We could have talked another eight and not considered every dialogue branch and every tree that you could possibly have about the intersection of feminism and gender theory, right? But here's the thing. Is one conversation that I have with a liberal woman where the topic is, broadly speaking, what does it even mean to be a woman anyway? Going to change anyone's mind? Is it going to change her mind? Well, what have we been saying this podcast? It's hard to change a person's mind when they're personally invested in a topic. Well, I'm sure, just as an example, Nat is very invested in the idea of what it means to be a woman. I mean, she's more invested in that idea than I was in the idea of God, I'm sure, or at least is invested, right? And look how long that transition took me. She's been a woman her whole life. It connects her to women's past and current struggles. It unites her with her fellow women today. She's intimately aware of the dangers of being a woman, how men can abuse women, the whole, you know, gambit, the whole, the whole... The whole shooting match. It must be unsettling, to say the least, to consider the idea that a person who is of the oppressor class, that's that's men, by the way. Sorry, but we've spent most of civilization subjugating women. Questions for follow-up, please send a three right turns. 3RT at swizzbold.com. But that this this person, this man, can become, through some process, a woman. Especially if that process is, I declare that I'm a woman. I mean, my God. 
If a man can, can become a woman by just declaring it with no other mental, emotional, or physical changes, yeah, I can see that being frightening. So we have a topic that women spend a lot of time thinking about, about an issue that very personally involves them. And if that were not enough, there's a lot of open hostility between the two camps there. It's a lot of balkanization. So now you got the fear of like loss of friendships, employment, social standing to add in a mix. You know, we got all the makings for something that's going to be a real tough thing for someone to work through. But it's also tough from my perspective because here, for the first time in, that I can remember in a civil rights struggle, at least here in America, uh, probably UK too, I'm not as familiar with their politics, but you got an issue between two minority groups historically underrepresented in society, women and, and trans people. Uh, just so happens women are the big group. They're the, they're the, the Goliath in, in this argument because trans people just make up very small percentage of the population. And when I think about how long trans rights has been a big issue in Western society, you know, I feel like it's really taken off since you know gay marriage was legalized in the U.S. in 2015. But obviously, trans people have been around for longer than that. Um, I started getting interested in social justice topics about 10 years ago. But it was a few years after that that I started learning more about trans issues. And it was probably less than three years ago before I even heard the term non-binary. It's pretty cutting edge stuff for society. So it took me 15 years to go from my first doubt to making a change in my life when it came to my regressive religious views. How long are we going to give people who grew up in 99.9% white areas to come around to the idea that structural racism is something that exists in America? Now, this is a separate issue from asking how long trans people should have to wait for legal protection and rights, right? It's separate from asking how long black people should continue to have to wait for equality and dignity. But they are connected because, you know, it's Overton window stuff. The faster society moves towards progressive ideas and empathy, the faster positive change can happen. The more society digs in its heels or takes a frightening turn towards a reactionary backlash... Well, we all play a role in how that happens. You know, gay marriage was legalized five years ago. Just a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court ruled that you can't be fired from your job just because you happen to be gay or trans. And yet, within this process, we still have people that are homophobic and transphobic. Uh, we still have these people with these views out here. You know, their legal protections are here and there's still more to come. But what do we do with the people that we have that are not on board? Do you just write them off? And, you know, if trans people want to be like, fuck TERFs, okay, I, I get that. And if a feminist lesbian wants to say, fuck off to all those who insist that they have to be sexually attracted to people that possess penises, I totally understand that, too. And black people can be like, fuck all these all lives matter ass white folks. I, I get that, too. But if we're not personally invested in an issue, if we have the luxury of being able to read a tone deaf comment from someone ignorant of like a trans or racial or economic or any kind of equality and not just instantly piss blood. If you have the personal capital with a person making these tone deaf comments, if you're the friend or a relative, maybe you can use this power for good. Maybe you don't have to jump straight to the what's in your blood cup, you fucking pig kill shot. You know, you don't have to go there. I mean, you can. God knows I'm not exactly proud of every interaction I've had with people on the other side of an intellectual battlefield on the Internet and in real life. But if we have the emotional capacity to exchange in good faith ideas with another person, if we have the patience not to expect a 180 degree turn. If we know that it can take a reasonable person of goodwill years to change their mind, if they do so at all, and they might change their mind and then still live their lives as if they hadn't for another few years, because it's hard to make those changes. If we can exploit these small windows where people haven't made up their mind one way or another, if we can inoculate them with good information before they're exposed to terms and arguments that's going to either deceive them with bullshit or press every defensive reactionary button in their bodies. If we can get to these people before they ever hear eat the rich or black people can't be racist or white fragility or people are being fired for saying biological sex isn't real. If we can do that, that's a gift that we can give to that person and to society. And it isn't just like this white man's burden, right? You know, if you're cis 
It doesn't matter if you're a man or woman or the color of your skin. Educate yourself. Fight the good fight. If you're straight, same deal. If you have a privilege, use that shit to disarm, de-escalate, diffuse, and educate. And I certainly want that for the Three Right Turns podcast and by extension, Swizzbold and the Swizzbold subreddit. I want this to be a place where people can get help in this way. You know, Swizzbold isn't the place to lose your cool. It's not the place to grandstand. It's a place to build empathy and educate. It's a place to organize and strategize. If you're not in a place to do that, sit back, take a break, let others do the heavy lifting. Because there's a lot of places people can go on the internet to get dismissed as racist and sexist and bigoted for essentially being a few years out of step with the Overton window or being born in a place or time where they weren't well educated on issues at the end of the day that have, you know, really little direct bearing on them. But of course, it has tremendous impacts on society at large, which do impact them, help them connect those dots. And, you know, there's there's also lots of places on the Internet to go if you need a safe space to discuss the higher level issues uh, of these topics. But I think I think we're getting there, you know, because every time I've come onto a Swizzbold thread and thought, oh, God, I wish I'd been here a couple hours or, or maybe a day earlier because things could have gone a lot better. There's been five where I've been really proud of the way people handled themselves uh, and the difficult questions and situations. So I guess that's what I'm saying. Help each other. If you see people arguing past each other, try to be the translator. Try to see the disconnect and make that connection happen. That's our mission here. That's what I'd like to see happen in our community. I know some of us know more things than others. We all have our personal perspectives. We all have our biases and blind spots. I want you to help me see those things. I want you to help each other. I want us all to be able to learn and grow at the same time. That's going to wrap things up for this week at Three Right Turns. I'll be back next week for uh, our final uh, weekly show, and then we're going to go to bi-weekly. It's going to be a feedback episode. I've got lots of feedback to consider, but if you'd like to get uh, one in on this podcast or previous ones, do so at 3RT at SwizzBold.com. The following week, Cecil and I have another fresh One Weird Trick episode waiting if you're at SwizzBold.com. The latest episode just dropped on Monday. Check it out. All of this is made possible by direct listener support at Patreon.com slash SwizzBold. Patronage confers several benefits. In addition to the enabling of more SwizzBold content, you can also get access to bonus episodes in the form of our monthly Patreon live stream. In fact, one is just around the corner, July 7th at 8 p.m. Me, Jim, and Cecily are going to hang out with chat, talk politics and culture, consider topics submitted by your fellow patrons. It's a great time. And you patrons can log on right now to patreon.com slash SwizzBold to suggest topics and view the live stream thread. On that note, I'd like to shout out all of our Fred-level patrons. Thanks go to Greg Rasp, James Taylor, Laura Luthi, Mark Hahn, Angela Morano, George P. Perdell, Arvin Rao, Jordan Hoyt, Kira Grusho, Brian Rasmussen, and Jared Harrelman. Very much appreciate your support of us here at SwizzBowl. Until the next time, stay safe out there. Enjoy your Independence Day. Don't give up on your friends and family. They're worth fighting for and fighting with. I'll see you next week. Thank you.